In his book, Atheism, The Case Against God, George Smith writes the following, quote, The belief in eternal torment, still subscribed to by fundamentalist Christian denominations, undoubtedly ranks as the most vicious, reprehensible doctrine of classic Christianity. It has resulted in an incalculable amount of psychological torture, especially among children where it is employed as a terror tactic to prompt obedience. Is George Smith right? Is hell a figment of the Christian imagination? Is it such a hideous doctrine that it's not true? What do we make of hell? Is it real? Why would God create such a place? These are some of the questions that I would like to address in this particular session. Before I do, it's important, however, to mention one introductory consideration, which I call the proper context of evidence. Suppose that I went to the shopping mall and I saw my wife holding hands with another man, unbeknownst to her that I would be there. What should I make of this? Should I think that she's cheating on me? Or should I be puzzled but not draw that conclusion? Well, if the only evidence that I were to take into account would be the evidence of my own eyes, what I'm seeing at the shopping mall, I believe it would be appropriate for me to conclude that my wife is cheating on me. However, what if I also take into account the evidence that I have accumulated over 30 years of living with her? The evidence that indicates to me that she hates adultery, that she is a faithful wife, that she would never in a thousand years cheat on me. When I take into account that evidence, then it counterbalances or overwhelms the evidence that I'm seeing in the shopping mall at that very moment. In this case, it would be reasonable for me to say something like the following. I don't know for sure what my wife is doing, but I can't believe at this point that she would be cheating on me because she is just not that kind of person. My judgment would be a rational judgment because I would take into account the proper context of evidence, which would include a much wider range of evidence than what I was seeing with my own eyes at the shopping mall. Or consider another example in a jury trial. One piece of evidence in isolation from all of the evidence might indicate that a defendant is in fact guilty of a crime. But when that evidence is put in the proper context by evaluating it in light of all of the evidence relevant to the case, it may be reasonable to conclude that while we don't have a good explanation for that one piece of evidence, it is still reasonable to believe the defendant is innocent on the basis of the total evidence relevant to the case. Now, how do these considerations inform our discussion of hell? <clears throat> Should we consider the question of, is hell real, in light of the indications of hell all by, its, by themselves, or should we take into account broader considerations that are relevant to assessing the case for hell? I believe the proper context of evidence in considering whether hell is real or not includes the broader context of evidence. 
pieces of evidence like the evidence that God himself is actually real. Evidence that the New Testament documents are historically reliable and that Jesus Christ really did and said the things that the New Testament claims. Evidence like the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If we have in place evidence that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really rose from the dead and that he tells the truth, then when I consider whether I believe hell is real or not, I should take into account that if I judge hell is not real, I will have to overturn all the evidence I have that Jesus Christ is a truth teller, that he was the risen Son of God, all the evidence I have for the historical reliability of the New Testament documents. So just as I would not judge that my wife is a cheater based solely on what I see at the shopping mall without taking into account a larger context of evidence, so I should not make a judgment about whether or not I'm going to accept the doctrine of hell by considering that doctrine in isolation from all the evidence I have that the Bible is in fact the Word of God, that Jesus Christ really was the Son of God, that He rose from the dead, and that He is a truth-teller. Given the evidence I have about Jesus of Nazareth, and given the fact that Jesus had more to say about hell than practically any topic He taught about, I would be foolish at this point not to believe hell is very, very real indeed. But now there's much more we can say about the topic, and so we press on to see if we can learn more about what hell is and why there is a hell. We can begin by asking the question, is there really such a thing as life after death? And I believe there is life after death, and I can give three reasons why I believe that. First of all, if God really does exist, then it stands to reason that God would not allow those made in His image to perish. God loves and values human persons. He has a project relevant to them. He cares about them. God is not going to allow those that He cherishes and cares deeply about to be snuffed out of existence. And so the first reason that we can know life after death is real is that God is real and God will not let those like human beings that He cherishes and treasures that are made in His image perish. The first piece of evidence then for life after death is theistic dependent. It depends upon the prior commitment to the reality of God and the idea that we human beings are indeed precious in His sight. The second piece of evidence that life after death is real rests on the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. If Jesus really did raise from the dead, as the Scriptures teach us and as the historical evidence confirms, then Jesus Christ Himself went to the afterlife and came back to tell us what it was like. We have then, in the case of Jesus Himself, someone who has actually died, been to life after death, knows what it's like, and has returned to give us detailed descriptions and information about the afterlife. On this basis, then, we can be confident that because Jesus rose, there is such a thing as life after death. The third piece of evidence for life after death comes from the hundreds and indeed thousands of near-death experiences that have been reported in the medical journals. I had a student just a few years ago whose grandfather was on the operating table 
and during the middle of an operation, he died. He found himself leaving his body, hovering at the, near the ceiling of the operation room, looking down on his body, and watching as two doctors were trying to bring him back to life. He could see his body on the operating table. He could see what the doctors were doing and how they were doing it. And he knew that he was viewing this from up above the hospital room. This was a case where someone actually died and was preserved living after death. Near-death experiences then provide evidence that there is, in fact, life after death. I believe that it's not a good idea to derive theological conclusions from near-death experiences, but I do believe that they provide overwhelming evidence that some kind of life after death is not only plausible, but is actually real. So for these three reasons, the idea that God would not allow those that he treasures in his image to perish, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from among the dead, and the existence of thousands upon thousands of cases of near-death experiences, for these and other reasons, I believe life after death must be taken very seriously, and it's very, very real. I also accept belief in life after death on the authority of the Old and New Testaments themselves. The Old and New Testament teaching is sufficient for me to know that there is life after death, but there are additional confirming proofs that I've tried to offer. Now, what exactly happens when an unbeliever dies? The New Testament, first of all, describes there as being an intermediate state in 2 Peter 2.9. The intermediate state is called in the New Testament Tartarus. It is a realm of reality where when people die who do not know Jesus Christ are ushered away from the manifest presence of God. They are conscious, they're alive, they're aware, they're aware of their circumstances, and they exist in an intermediate state the New Testament calls Tartarus. Now, the Bible does talk about those who have fallen asleep. And it is sometimes concluded that because the Bible describes those who die as having fallen asleep, that upon death people are no longer conscious, but they're sleeping, awaiting the resurrection of their body. However, 2 Peter 2.9 makes it very, very clear that unbelievers who perish outside of Christ are fully conscious of their circumstances and awake in this intermediate state. 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians chapter 1 indicate that those who know Jesus Christ are fully awake and aware of God's presence. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that means to be aware of His presence. What do we then make of the soul of the falling asleep language? When people are described as having fallen asleep when they died, this is called phenomenological language in Scripture. Phenomenological language is language used to describe something the way it appears to an observer. For example, we use phenomenological language when we say the sun rises and the sun sets. The sun doesn't literally rise and set. Instead, the earth rotates. But the sun appears to rise and appears to set and so it's appropriate for us to use that phenomenological language to describe the sun's motion. In the same way, 
it appears to those left behind that the dead person has fallen asleep. Thus, the use of sleep language to describe the dead is not meant to be taken literally. It is meant to be taken phenomenologically. It is a description of how the dead person appears to those who are left behind. We also know that in the ancient Near East and other religious traditions, the language of falling asleep was used, even though those religions clearly taught that there was a conscious afterlife where people were awake, fully alive, and aware of their circumstances. This demonstrates that in other religions outside the Old Testament it was, and the New Testament, the language of falling asleep was phenomenological only and was not meant to be taken literally. After a person who does not know Jesus Christ perishes, they are taken to Tartarus, an intermediate state. They no longer have bodies. They exist in a disembodied state. The soul has left the body, but they're conscious and awake and aware of their situation. They await the final resurrection of the dead when Jesus Christ returns, and both the dead that are in Christ and know him and the dead who are not in Christ and do not know him will be given resurrection bodies. At that point, according to Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15, those who do not know Jesus Christ will stand before what is called the great white throne judgment, and they will experience what the New Testament calls a second death. Death in the Scriptures does not mean annihilation, it means separation. And the second death amounts to the banishment of those who do not know Christ in completely away from the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Now, what exactly is the nature of hell? We discover, if we read the New Testament, especially the two key texts that describe the nature of hell, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, and Matthew 25, 31-46. These are the two central New Testament texts that talk about the very essence of hell. And while there is more to hell than what I'm about to say, the core essence of hell is complete banishment and exclusion from the presence of God, from the presence of love, and from the presence of anything of real value. Depart from me is the essence of hell, where a person is sentenced to be away from the presence of God, to be away from the presence of God's kingdom, to be away from love, peace, joy, kindness, goodness, and anything of value forever and ever. So that the essence of hell is banishment. This means that hell is fundamentally described in relational categories. Hell is fundamentally a relation of exclusion away from the presence of God. Where is hell? We actually don't know for sure the answer to that question. We do know that hell is a realm of reality that is separate somehow from the inhabited earth. Hell may be a region of space in our space-time universe. Hell may be a completely different kind of space 
that is uh, other than the three dimensions of space that occupy our universe. So it may very well be very much like in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When the children went through the wardrobe cabinet, they entered a completely different realm that seemed to be parallel to our world. It may very well be that hell is a place that is going to be parallel to our universe in a different kind of space. We're not certain the location of hell then, but we do know that hell is very, very real. Hell is a place of unimaginable suffering. It is a place of great, great regret. It is a place where people experience anguish. And it is a place, I hate to say it, but it's true, of complete and utter darkness. God does not torture people in hell. God simply sentences people to banishment in hell. The punishment is being in hell itself. It is not the ongoing and continuous torture by God. God is not the kind of person who's going to torture people. But because God is just, He is the kind of person who will sentence people and banish them if they deserve it. What do we make of the flames in hell? Are they literal? The majority of New Testament scholars and systematic theologians that believe the Bible do not take the flames of hell to be literal, but instead take them to be figures of speech. Here's the reason for that. There are really three reasons. The first reason is that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, we are told that at the final judgment, Death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. It becomes obvious once one thinks about this text that this can't be taken literally because death isn't like a basketball that could be thrown into a lake. Death is an abstract concept. It's not the sort of thing that you could pick up and throw somewhere. Death isn't something that has spatial dimensions so that it could literally be inside of a lake. Um, Hades, death in Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. Hades is a term referring to Tartarus or the intermediate state. And at the final judgment, the intermediate state will be done away with, and the final state, Gehenna, hell itself, will be enacted. So that when the text says that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, The text really means that death and Hades will be brought to judgment and will exist no longer. Uh, People will be separated from dying again, and they will be separated from Hades, the intermediate state, and will instead be in hell throughout all eternity. So the first reason why most New Testament scholars do not take the flames of hell to be literal is because in texts where the flames are used... It doesn't make sense to treat them literally. It makes sense to treat them metaphorically as bringing judgment upon death and Hades. The second reason why most New Testament scholars do not take the flames of hell to be literal is because if you take them to be literal, you end up with contradictory descriptions of the afterlife. For example, the afterlife is described as a place of flames, but it is also described as a place of complete and utter darkness. How could hell be completely dark if there were 
Fire is burning in hell. Fire gives off light. It would follow then that if hell had flames in it, it wouldn't be dark. It would be wildly and completely illuminated by flames that were constantly burning and giving off heat and light to generate an atmosphere in hell. So the second reason why most scholars don't believe that the flames of hell are literal is because if you take them that way, they generate contradictions about hell itself. Finally, it becomes clear from a number of passages that the metaphorical use of fire in the Old and New Testament is as a figure of speech for divine judgment. Texts such as 2 Thessalonians 1.7, Mark 9.48-49, 1 Corinthians 3.13, Hebrews 12.29, Revelation 14, 10-11, and Jude 13 all seem to clearly indicate that the concept of fire in certain passages in the New Testament is a figure of speech for divine judgment. For example, Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. God is not himself composed of fire. That can't be taken literally. God is a spirit. He doesn't, he's not composed of flames. But when the text tells us that God is a consuming fire, it means that God is a God who brings judgment. We are told in Revelation that Jesus Christ will come back surrounded by flames of fire. We are also told that Jesus Christ will come back with a long sword coming out of his mouth. But these are merely figures of speech. The sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth is a figure of speech for the Word of God. The fire in his eyes and the flames that surround him indicate that he is coming back as a judge who will bring swift and final judgment upon those who have opposed him. And so the, hell is a place of utter darkness. It is a place of excruciating sorrow and sadness. It is a place of great anguish. It is not a torture chamber where God tortures. And the flames of hell are figures of speech for divine judgment. There are also degrees of punishment or degrees of suffering in hell. For example, we are told in Luke 12, 47 to 48, Luke 11, 21 to 24, and Matthew 23, 23, that there are some sins that are worse than other sins, even though they're all sin, and that people will be punished according to their deeds or in accordance with or proportionally with or proportionate to their deeds. It seems then that there will be degrees of anguish and degrees of suffering in hell in accordance with people's deeds. Being in hell is not going to be a pleasurable experience for anyone, but the degree of evil in a person's life does seem to have some function in indicating the degree to which they will suffer in the afterlife. Now, why exactly is there a hell? Why did God create hell in the first place? The first reason is because of God's justice and His holiness. Crime must be paid for. And if someone does something wrong, there must be punishment for what they did. The greater the crime, the greater the punishment. If a person commits murder, 
they should be punished more than a person who steals $10. The Bible indicates that the greatest evil that any human being can do in this world is to mock God and to reject the death of his own son on the cross. It follows that if this is the rejection of an infinite God, only an infinite punishment can be appropriate for the worst of all possible sins, namely, the rejection of an infinite God. Put it like this. Suppose that I stole $500 from you, and I came to you later and I said, I'm sorry that I stole $500. Just to make this up to you, I'd like to pay you $25 back. You would rightly be offended at the suggestion, and here's why. Since you were the party that was offended, you are the one who has the right to set the terms for our reconciliation. Since I am the party that did the wrong thing, I do not have the right to set the terms for our reconciliation. God is the offended party. He is the one who has been rejected and mocked. It was the death and the crucifixion of his own son that people reject in order to go to hell. We do not, therefore, have the right to come to God and say, I don't accept your terms of reconciliation. I believe that we should be made right with you on these grounds. We don't have the right to come up with the terms of reconciliation because we are the ones that were the offending party. God was the offended party. It is his right to come up with the terms of reconciliation. And he has done so through the death, the resurrection, and belief in his Son, as the only Savior of the world. If we do not do that, if we reject the offer of an infinite God, we are worthy of an infinite justice. Consider another illustration. The story is told of a man who operated a drawbridge for a train that passed by the drawbridge on a daily basis. When the man knew the train was coming, he would lower the drawbridge so the train would go by on the tracks without incident. Of course, if the drawbridge were not lowered, the train would crash and all the passengers on the train would be killed. One day, the drawbridge operator went down to perform his job to lower the drawbridge for the train, and to his horror, he looked down and saw that his little son was playing among the gears of the drawbridge. The man had to make a decision if he lowered the drawbridge to save the passengers on the train, he would crush his little son to death in the gears of the drawbridge. If he saved his son's life, it would mean consigning to death all the passengers on the train. In an instant, he made the decision he believed was the right decision. He lowered the drawbridge and listened with horror as, the, as his son screamed to his own death, and what made the situation even sadder was that the people who went by him on the train didn't so much as pay him any attention. They didn't even look at him. They completely ignored how gracious he had been to lower the drawbridge. They were, in short, conducting their lives in complete indifference to what this man had done in sacrificing his own son for their lives. This is exactly what happens 
when people continue to live their lives in rejection of what God the Father did to His own Son. Like the drawbridge operator, God sent His own Son to excruciating death in order to save the lives of people on the train called planet Earth. If we go through our lives and ignore and neglect and disregard what our heavenly drawbridge operator did for us, then we deserve to be separated from Him forever. The first reason, then, that there is a hell is because of God's holiness and justice, and we deserve infinite punishment and separation from God if we commit the, a, a crime against an infinite being, namely mockery of what He's done for us, rejection and indifference toward it. The second reason that there's a hell is that people who don't know and fall in love with Jesus Christ would be out of place in heaven, would not fit there, and would not want to be there. The Bible teaches us that the decisions that we make in this life day by day draw us closer to heaven or closer to hell. Those who love Jesus Christ in this life who seek Him, who seek His face, who seek to serve Him, who seek to know Him with their daily lives, are becoming the kind of people who want to be in heaven. They want to do what people do in heaven. They want to be around the central figure of heaven, that is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They hunger to be like Jesus Christ. They long to be around Him and those who love Him. Heaven is ideally suited for people who have made that decision in this life. But for those who have decided not to follow Jesus Christ in his life, heaven would be a place completely and utterly unsuitable for them. They wouldn't fit in. They wouldn't want to be there. They wouldn't like the chief resident. They wouldn't want to be around those who love him, and they wouldn't want to participate in the activities of heaven. Thus, the second reason there's a hell is that those who do not say yes to Jesus Christ in this life would not find heaven a place that is suitable. The third reason there is a hell is because there is no other alternative for God besides creating it. Now, let me explain. There are some people that no matter what God does to reach out to them, because they have free wills, they will never choose to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness and mercy that God offers to them through the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. No matter what God does to send missionaries, to send evangelists, to bring dreams, to bring visions, to bring testimonies to these people, they will never say yes to Jesus Christ because they have a free will and God cannot ultimately coerce their free will and force them to say yes to His gospel. Thus, there are some people, no matter what God does, that will never say yes to Jesus Christ, and God is not about to coerce their wills and force them. However, these very same people are not beings that God can annihilate, that is, snuff out of existence. Why could God not annihilate them? 
because human beings have incredible dignity and value simply because they exist and are made in the image of God. If God were to snuff out of existence one of his image bearers, a human being that is made in his image, what God would be doing would be destroying a locus of incredible high value in the created world. If God were to annihilate a human being, he would treat that human being as a mere thing or as a mere means to an end. And human beings, because they're made in God's image, are ends in themselves. They are never to be used as mere means to an end, and God himself would never treat a human being as a pure means to an end. That would violate their dignity as ends in themselves, as centers of intrinsic value, as beings made in the very image of God. To annihilate a human being would be to treat that human being as a means to the end of removing suffering or as a means to the end of ridding the universe of their presence. And that would be to treat them as a means to an end which God won't do. So think of the options that are available to God. God can't reform them or persuade them to to accept the gospel of His Son. And God can't snuff them out of existence and annihilate them because that would violate their status as image bearers of the, of the divine. If God cannot conform, reform them and God cannot annihilate them, the only alternative is going to be a quarantine. What God will have to do, sad to his own heart, because the Bible says that I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God will have to prepare a place in his creation that is a quarantine, a place where those who have rejected him will dwell forever without being able to pollute and affect the rest of his created world. And that is precisely what hell is. It's a quarantine. We've talked about is there life after death. We've talked a little bit about what hell is. And we have said a basic reason, three reasons why There is a place called hell. We ask, finally, is hell just? Now, we've already hinted at that by describing the reasons for hell, but more can be said about this question by considering the alternatives to hell. First of all, why is it that people can't get a second chance after death? Because Hebrews 9.27 says that after death comes the judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Why can't people be given a second chance? Well, for three reasons. First of all, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is delaying the return of His Son, Jesus Christ, in order to give people as much time as possible to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ. From this passage, we learn a principle. If all a person needed to come to Jesus Christ was a little bit more time, then God would make sure that that person did not die prematurely. God will never allow a person to die prematurely if all they needed was a little bit more time and he knows that they would have repented and trusted the death of his son for their sins. So that God will extend to people all the time they need 
to repent. That means that if a person dies, God knows that no amount of additional time, even in an afterlife, would cause them to turn around and to repent of their sins and embrace the gospel. Secondly, it's far from clear that people in a situation with life after death would be in a, in a place to really choose to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ without that choice being coerced. A choice that's real can't be coerced. But the vividness and the reality of what a person is facing in the afterlife as they faced sentencing to hell would be so vivid and so overwhelming and so coercive that any quote-unquote choice that was made in that situation would not really be a genuine choice but a coerced, forced decision. The circumstances in this life before death are exactly what people need to make a real choice to say yes or no to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why so? Because God's existence and His reality is evident and clear to anyone who wants to know whether God is real. The fact that we are guilty before God and that He's holy and that we need His mercy is evident and obvious to anybody who wants to know it from the created world, so that we are without excuse in this life in knowing that we are guilty before the God of holiness and He is right to judge us. However, on the other hand, God's presence is not so overwhelming that we are unable to ignore Him if we want to. It is entirely possible for me, if I wish, to ignore God, to forget about Him, to disregard Him. Given that God's existence and His proper role as judge of my sins is evident and available to me if I want to ponder it, but not so overwhelming that if I want to I can ignore it, I am in this life in a perfect place to make a real choice. However, in the afterlife, any choice would not be real. It would be coerced. Finally, the third reason why God doesn't give people a second chance in the afterlife is that if He did, it would make this life superfluous. Think of it like this. If the real decision as to where I will spend eternity takes place after death, then why didn't God simply create us at the very beginning of our lives in the circumstances after death, instead of creating us as little children and forcing us to have to go through this first life, when this first life wasn't really the life of choice. If the real choice takes place after death, then life before death is ultimately meaningless because the choices we make here don't matter for eternity. Thus, if the real choices that we make for eternity were made after death, life before death would become pointless and superfluous. We can ask the question, well then why doesn't God reform everyone and save everyone that He creates? And the answer is that it's not possible for God to reform or to save everyone because God is not going to coerce and violate people's freedom of choice. 
And if there are people who, no matter what God does to pursue them, simply will not say yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is little more God can do if he is going to be a respecter of people's free will, which he is. One of the things you learn about the nature of spirit is that spirit doesn't usually want to be where it's not welcomed. I'm like my spirit is like that. Your spirit is like that. You don't want to be where you're not welcomed and appreciated. God's the same way. God is a gentleman. He doesn't like to be places where people reject him. And if people want to reject him, he will banish them away from his presence. Well, then again, why doesn't God annihilate those who go to hell? We've already touched on this, but just another word about it might be helpful. Consider the difference between quality of life and sanctity of life arguments in euthanasia. Euthanasia is the practice of killing a patient. Active euthanasia is the practice of killing a patient who is suffering in the hospital. Sanctity of life advocates say that it's wrong to kill a patient intentionally by a doctor, though though it's entirely appropriate to bring pain relief. And the reason that it's wrong to kill a patient is that a patient gets his value from existing in the image of God, not from the quality of his life. Quality of life advocates say that it's permissible to kill a patient because they have a low quality of life. And the argument is that since we get our value from the quality of our lives, not from the sanctity of our lives, if our lives drop below a certain level of quality, we are no longer creatures of value and it could be entirely appropriate to kill us. If we apply the quality of life, sanctity of life reasoning to hell, we see that annihilationists are quality of life proponents, and those of us like me who believe in everlasting hell are sanctity of life proponents. The only reason that God would be justified in annihilating a person is because of the low quality of life they experience in hell, their suffering, their anguish. But this would be to treat people in hell as though their value came from the quality of their lives and not from simply existing in the image of God. Because God believes that our value comes from existing in His image and not from the quality of our lives, He is not going to treat us as means to the end of removing suffering, because that is to reason in a quality of life kind of way and not a sanctity of life kind of way. And God values human life because it, is, it bears his image, not because of the quality of human life. If God were to value us according to the quality of our lives, we would all be valued differently depending on how qualitatively meaningful our lives were. We might ask one final question. Isn't an everlasting hell an overkill for the sins done in a finite time? After all, a person lives 80 to 85 years, and they commit sins for 80 to 85 years. Isn't everlasting hell too much punishment for a life, a finite time of sin? There are two things that can be said in response to this problem. Number one, the length of, t- the length of time for punishment is not a function of how long it took to, to commit the crime. It is a function of how severe the crime was. The severity of punishment in jail is a function of how serious the crime was, not how long it took to commit it. Thus, it might take me all day to steal the furniture in your house if I were trying to load a moving van and steal your furniture. 
It might only take me three seconds to kill you. While stealing your furniture took me a longer period of time, the crime of murder is more serious than the crime of theft, and I would deserve a more severe punishment for murder, even though it did not take me as long to commit it. Rejecting the infinite sacrifice of an infinite God is worthy of infinite punishment. And so, then that is not a function of how long it took to commit this crime, but the severity of the nature of rejecting and mocking the God of creation and not accepting his offer of forgiveness. So that the first reason why hell is everlasting is that it involves the most serious offense that could possibly be committed by a person in this life. The second reason that hell is everlasting, I've already touched on. God simply has no alternative. If people in hell simply are unwilling to say yes to God, and if God is not going to annihilate them because they bear His image, His only alternative is to quarantine them forever. And that is exactly what hell is. In fact, one scholar has said that it is actually true that people in hell are free to leave. Now, I'm not sure he's right about this, but he went on to say that people in hell are free to leave if they want to. But the problem is they are so polluted by their own evil that once they're in hell, they would never say yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so once you're in hell, you never will, in fact, leave And the reason that you stay in hell is the result of your daily choices to want to remain there, believe it or not. I've tried to explain to you why there is a place called hell. We've talked about the justice of hell, and we've talked about the nature of hell. In light of what we've said, it makes no sense to me why anyone would ever want to go there. And glory be to God, there is a way out. God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And through faith in His crucifixion and resurrection, and trust in Him and what He did for us, we can have eternal life and pass out of judgment and be in heaven with Him forever. May I say that the topic of hell, then, is no academic discussion, but it is the very matter of life and death itself.